Hello, and welcome to the Two Trees Podcast. We're here to talk about angels, demons, ghosts, the pagan gods, and the weird corners of the Bible. We're talking about the beliefs of the ancient world and the way that they talked about the supernatural world, all to help you understand the people and places of the Bible, to be able to engage with the text on a deeper level. We're here to help you get over being bored with your Bible, how to see the patterns and the literary designs that the ancient authors of Scripture used as they were led by the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. But most important of all, we are here to show you Jesus as Deuteronomy 10, 17 describes him. The Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, mighty and awesome. My name is John, and I'm here with my hosts, Jacob Kessling. What's up? And Martin Listener. Hey, all. And uh, we are actually recording in Martin's basement because we got ran out of the last place. Because Jacob didn't want us recording there anymore. It's too much noise. Too much noise. It wasn't I, my fault. Why well, kids set up like Christmas tree stuff, dragging across the floor, dogs barking? I mean, it's just yeah. The, just never. The know. background ensemble for the last attempt at this was was epic. <laughs> like it was great. The singing was good. Whatever it was. Yeah, somebody it was, it was a little bit of piano playing. Yeah, would yeah. just like play a random chord and then like sing as just, loudly as they could. Something. Just making up lyrics as they go. Anyway, it was it was great. I don't know that you can really pay for that kind of background. It's yeah, interesting that you have like four dogs, but. They were just fine, right? But the kids were what was the issue. So, Have, do you do you know his dogs very well? Maybe that says something. Just when I'm over there, yeah, I like my, his. My dogs. dogs are fine as long as not random person knocks at the door, which is why I say just walk in. Let's leave all the drama behind. <laughs> just walk in. They're fine. Is that an invitation for everyone listening? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just yeah. come on in. Jacob will be there somewhere. <laughs> just walk in. Be nice to Beans though. Beans is my spirit animal. I really like that dog. He's he's my man. We can't talk about beans. Uh, he's so nice, grouchy. <laughs> I like him. Anyway, the the last time we had we had some pizza here. I, I told you guys what what happened when I took the pizza home, didn't I? Hmm. Yeah, there was a. We got a dog. His name's Jack, and he's he's lovely. He's he's lovely. He but he's been eating everything. In he's the still house. a puppy. You gotta give him a little. He's grace. a puppy, but he's eaten three sticks of butter off of the <laughs> counter. He just like jumps up and is like, I know there's goods here. And so he's put in the back part of the house where the laundry machine's at, and there's like a baby gate over it. And I'm walking in late with the, the pizza in the box, and I step over that gate, and the dog's bouncing around. Anyway, I didn't get my back foot over the gate, and I, I <laughs> bit it. Dude, I wiped out so bad. <laughs> I threw the pizza everywhere, and the dog is jumping. He's so excited. I'm home. I'm laying on the ground moaning, and it was. Anyway, so, I didn't so get Jack to eat any of that pizza. pizza. Jack like, had yeah. it. Yeah, I thought we were set for lunch for a little while. <laughs> and uh, I told my son, Patrick, I was like, you know, we, we got pizza, but I threw it away. And he, didn't, he didn't like that. I have a couple theories on that. Either one, your back leg is always longer than your front leg, no matter which one you use to get over it. Or something lifts up the gate once you got one foot over it, because... When we had him, when my son was little, you always catch your back toe on those things. Well, everyone everyone was asleep when I got home. And so I'm trying to be quiet. The dog's barking. I'm like, shh, quiet, Jack. You know, and then I proceed to just tear the house up. Bite you know, I'm throwing things and I'm yelling. Ah! Anyway, nobody woke up. I just Crash. laid in the floor by myself, pushing my life alert button, hoping <laughs> that somebody would come save me. Uh, but uh, no, I... Just bring that up. Just laid on the floor and had a slice. It's like I'm just anytime gonna... you want to get more pizza, I will try it again. But that one, that one went bad. 
Uh, but we have been talking about the spiritual world around us, and the way that the Bible talks about spiritual realities is different from the way that we would talk about spiritual realities. We think in a very scientific um Put it in a phylum class, you know, give it exactly where it goes, give it a scientific name. And the spiritual world is described in the Bible is very, very different. It isn't a biological thing at all. It's not trying to delineate species and types and that kind of thing the way that we would talk about it. But it does talk about different types of spiritual beings. And what we're going to be talking about today is the topic of Satan. What does the Bible say about this character? He is probably the most famous evil person in the world, and he is a person. He has personality. He's not omnipresent like God. He is an angelic being, a fallen, created being. And the Bible talks about him quite a bit and in slightly different ways than perhaps you're used to. In the Bible, if you are talking about a supernatural being, especially in the Old Testament, they talk about it by linking it to other things. For instance, if you were to talk about going up to a high place to worship uh, a heavenly being, and if you want to talk about an unheavenly being or a, a hellish being, an evil being, you reverse that picture. Instead of going up, you go down into low places. Uh, valleys and caves would have been places where uh, those types of beings were were worshipped. One of the most famous of them is, is Gehenna, just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a valley where the king of Israel offered up his son to uh, a pagan god. And so in the biblical context, if you're talking about an evil spiritual being, you oftentimes connect it with low places that... Uh, terminology of being cast down or dragged through the dirt or uh, words like grave or hell are used. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it just you think of it when you go up, that's a positive thing, right? right? When you mm-hmm. go down, that's just a negative. And that's with numbers, with everything. Is Up is good, down is bad. And except for golf. That's a good point. I but my numbers are always high when I play golf, which <laughs> is because I'm better at it than most people. I know the real way to win the game is to get triple digits. Uh, no, per another, hole or? Yeah, per, per hole, hole, yes. Yeah. Uh, another way that uh, you would distinguish uh, an evil being is to describe it uh, in terms of animals that exist in the wilderness. And this is weird for us because we have watched enough National Geographic to know all about the animals that live in the wilderness, and we've been taken on tours to see the jackals in their natural habitat. But to the ancient peoples, if you can imagine them sitting around a fire at night and hearing the movement of animals in the darkness, animals that you knew were a danger or were unearthly, you don't see them in the day, but you hear them, you sense their presence around you. That image became a way of talking about other unseen realities that move around us and that even though you can't see them, they were convinced of their presence and so am I. The third way, or a third way, there's actually a couple, that they would talk about evil beings is to link it to an evil person or place. So if you talk about, um, for instance, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the Antichrist and it links him with the city of Babylon. And he has a partner in crime, and there's another evil city, and it's called Mystery City, Babylon. 
And so you get this idea, are, are both of these places named Babylon? Probably not. It's a way of linking these places to the forces of evil, to the kingdom of the darkness. And so in the Bible, you'll find places where characters are linked to an evil place. Uh, we would use like the Nazis as if we were going to write it today. And uh, we would kind of understand what you're talking about, that there is a spirit behind the physical people at work, behind the throne of Egypt in the book of Exodus, or behind the throne of Babylon or Tyre in the stories that we read. And uh, one of those that we're going to look at today is found in Ezekiel 28. And this is found in a text that's talking about um, the prince of Tyre. And Tyre is a city that's connected deeply to the worship of Baal. And anyone who's read their Old Testament should recognize that name. It's, it's, a, it's a bad guy, a rival in the, the idea of worship in Israel to the worship of God. This is Jezebel's hometown. And this story starts out by giving a, a series of, uh, oh, let's try to think of how to say it, woes kind of a thing. Like this is bad news. And it talks to the prince of Tyre. And then it stops fitting him very well. And you get the idea that now the story is not working on just one dimension, but two. And the Bible begins to address the power behind the throne. And in this instance, it's talking about Satan. There, there is differences of opinion. Some people think this is talking about Adam or different people. You're listening to our podcast, so you're going to get our spin. If you have a different opinion on this, that's awesome. Part of the fun of this podcast is to think and to chase down stuff that interests you. So just to say this, um, again, just because I, I think this would have been hard for me to ca catch or capture, um, this isn't. This is perhaps to the king of Tyre, but it's also, and we're going to see as it reads on, this is also to the power behind right. the king. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's again these these layers that are happening. Like we we've talked about that the idea of uh, even talking about David or David being a picture of Christ later on. These there's statements that are said that mm. not only well that sometimes don't even link to David but link to Jesus. Yeah, like David gives the the famous "You won't leave my soul in hell to see, my body in hell to see corruption." And mm. we know that David did die, and that his body I assume at this point has decomposed. I don't actually know that. That's right. But it's it's a messianic prophecy talking about Jesus. And so there are times where the Bible does this. We wouldn't do it this way. So this isn't like calling Satan or the evil one the king of Tyre? No. Okay. This is where I guess some, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. That's why I think this is good to talk talk it through. It is talking to the king of Tyre, but what also is behind it? Okay, yeah, good. the Bible uses, especially in poetry, it will restate an idea from several different angles. And it's like walking around an object to take a look at it. I think I gave you guys the illustration once of a waterfall. And that if you walk across the stream and you see it from a different angle, you're looking at the same waterfall, but because you've changed your position, your understanding of it is now much better. You want to get close to the thing. And the Bible uses this way of talking about especially supernatural content in ways that we can visualize because it's talking about spiritual things, which by definition are not physical. And with the waterfall analogy, you mentioned in that, that you take the time to look at it from the other perspective. Mm. So the writers are doing that for us by reiterating it in a way that is a little bit different, but describing the same uh, subject matter. But I believe it's also up to us to, to 
do that ourselves, make ourselves look mm-hmm. at it from that different perspective. And I know that's a lot of the reason why we're here today is to get that different perspective on the same Yeah, we want to help people overcome cultural obstacles that would stop them from seeing these sorts of things. And if you don't see it right away, it's okay. If you're reading a text of Scripture and you say, I'm not really sure what that was about, but I'm thinking about it, mm-hmm. then I think that's a huge win. It's, it's when we are thinking about it, we don't care enough to really think about it, we just push on. You should have questions. Write them down. Really meditate on stuff and try to figure these things out. And then when you've got an answer, don't die on that hill. You know, be, be open and thinking about it. The Bible will make itself clear when it, when it wants to, when it needs to. Some of these things are just to capture the level of enchantment and wonder that is present in the world if we let it be. And if there's anybody out there that feels like, well, there's no way that I could pick that out, or I, I would skip right over that. What you guys just mentioned, I never thought of that. Well, that's I was in the same boat, and I still am in the same boat. You know, I've said this about every podcast. I'm not a, a pastor or a preacher. I never went to school for this type of stuff. But even just reading through it now as an adult that's moderately intelligent as far as that goes, I'm able to pick out the stuff when I need it to be picked out, like you just mentioned. The Bible will make itself clear. The Holy Spirit will help you get through this. And if you're still struggling, get together with somebody. Yeah, one of the best things you can do is read in community, which is honestly reading this with you guys has helped me a lot. Mm -hmm. Like there are things that I I think, and then when I try to communicate them, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense at all. I need to go back and think about that. Jacob, you look like you're chewing on something. No, I just I was I was thinking that yeah, sometimes you're not right, and we have to correct what? you. What? But it's a, it's a lot. Of, it News is a lot of fun. Him. I I'm, I am definitely one of those who like to process scripture. Um, not there's nothing wrong with me just just sitting at home or meditating on scripture or just reading by myself or writing things down. But man, I I have learned to ask questions and going into the text with questions. Uh, man, just it makes it a lot more. Um, uh, I don't want to say. I also use. I like the word fun, just because I'm a. I'm a. I don't want to say seven on the Instagram because you might not even know what that is. But uh, I like to have a lot of fun with scripture. I, I love to to dream, to think, you know, come up with stuff, and then talk to people about it. But it really is uh, has been a lot of of. Um, it's been a good journey doing that, not just with my friends, but with my wife and with my kids. So it's been it's been really good. So in the text that we're about to read, and this is chapter twenty eight of Ezekiel verses, we can start in 13. Uh, you can tell this stops talking about the king or the prince of Tyre because of the content. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And it goes on to describe those stones and, and the gold. And so what you have here is a supernatural being who was created by God on purpose and for a purpose. And to describe what he looks like, he describes like him as stones that catch light, that shine. And these stones are listed particularly for this purpose. These are stones that catch light. And so is this saying like he has a like a shirt made out of rocks? Uh, probably not. You should link some high priestly language here. These stones are important. But what we're left with here is this isn't just a regular person. This is someone who's described as covered in wealth, covered in light, and is present in the garden of God. And so the Prince of Tyre does not fit this description. This is someone who was in Eden and is given almost priestly-like description here as being covered in stones. And to match it back to what we've talked about in the past when you say covered in light, right? When we were talking about Mm -hmm. light in the sky, the, the 
stars, that is showing life. Right, right. right. These moving. are the kinds of images that draw your mind. What are they trying to tell you? Why are these stones described? This is a being who, in the presence of light, reflects light. He has none of his own, and he was made to glorify God, same as we are. But this being, and we talked about his personality and his I wills in the last text, what he wants is not to reflect light. He wants to be the center of all things. It says, on the day that you were created, they were prepared. This is verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God, and in the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So when you think of a cherub, Jacob, what, what image comes to mind? What used to come to mind was, uh, you know, like a little uh, baby with wings, like my grandma had precious moments on her in her uh, curio oh, cabinet. The little fat baby <laughs> yeah, that's right. fluttering that's exactly around right. with... But I know like now, I mean, that there's, again, a guardian chair was one who guarded something. And mm-hmm. um, like the, the ones that were set up around the gate of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve or whoever else to come back in and eat right. from the Tree of Life. God specifically sets a cherub there. Right. That's, that's, that's in the story. The question I always have is, that, you know, if he was set up as a guardian cherub, what was he guarding? I, I think it's really the, where, where my mind often goes, or was he guarding something? Is that not given to us? Can we... You know, dig into that some, but um, but a guardian cherub. I I go back to the stone thing. I mean, first of all, my playful mind goes to like Elvis Presley and his his the rhinestones, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sparkling. But the other side, it was like uh, I would think that someone who is adorned in gold and those gems. I mean, it seems as there's um, uh, it's it's I would I I think about power. I think about um. Uh, beauty. I think about uh, just those kinds of of mm. words and and things. Uh, I don't think ugly. I don't think red tail and a horns, and I don't think that. I think yeah. someone who is just a beautiful, um, on you know, inside and out. But I mean, I but I just think of the outside external beauty when I look at all that stuff. Yeah, and I think if you go back a verse to verse twelve, it talks about his beauty, and and he was he was really something. God didn't make him to be evil. God made him to be in fellowship with him and to be part of his court. Uh, to serve the Lord. Adam and Eve were also part of this extended, purpose-filled people, uh, but they walked in the physical world. And in Eden, where the physical world and the spiritual world seem to have overlapped, both of these characters are in play. And one of them is described as the guardian cherub. Now, cherubs, like Jacob said in, in art, are normally naked babies, Yeah, but that's a very modern idea. Everyone in the ancient world knew what cherubim were. This this was a concept that was cross-cultural. Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Assyrian, everybody knew what this was. And kings often carved them onto their thrones. They'd put them on like the, the armrests of their thrones. A lot of ancient descriptions of the thrones have these throne guardians uh, attached to them, and they're part animal and part human. It doesn't mean they necessarily looked like that because it's a spiritual being, but when they tried to depict what this spirit is like, that's how they described them. Uh, the Sphinx is a great example mm-hmm. of a cherubim-type figure. But there are literally thousands of them scattered across the ancient world. They knew exactly what this was. Sometimes when you walked into a holy place or a city that was protected by a particular deity, they would have cherubim at the gates, and the idea was don't mess with us here. Our gods are watching. It was kind of like the ancient version of security cameras. Wow. And that's one of the biggest things I take from this is when it says, I, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. I always 
thought that, you know, Satan had a reason for being created, and the reason for him being created was to be the bad guy. Mm. Every story needs a bad guy, but when you read through this, that's not the case. You know, I placed you to be the anointed guardian cherub, and in verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created. Like, Mm. he was created as a perfect being the way that he was supposed to be, but it was his decision to go against God and to rebel. It wasn't the way God intended it. Right. So it's not like... You think like a little bit of this backstory or you know introduction would take place in Genesis one and two, and we have some kind of glimpse of this character. It's about ready to rise up, but we don't really see him until he pops up here in three. It's yeah. Just- well, so in church history, and and I think largely because of a book called Paradise Lost, which is a fantastic and beautiful piece of literature. Um, most Christians, if you ask them, will tell you that they believe Satan rebelled against God before the creation of the world, that there was this great rebellion and a third of the angels followed him into rebellion. And they use Revelation 12 as their proof text for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're reading just Genesis and going into the story, you wouldn't assume that. Yeah. That's something that we've dragged into the story. And I don't think Revelation 12 is talking about a pre-creation rebellion against God. I think the fall of Satan happens here in Genesis 3. If you think I'm crazy, that's great. Send us a message and tell me how crazy you think I am. Uh, We're just talking about these ideas here. And so what I think occurs is God creates a spiritual world and a physical world. And in one place, God creates a garden, which is temple imagery. This is a place most ancient temples were described in terms of gardens. They had gardens in them. There were places where there was waters and animals were kept there and trees were planted This was a place for the God to walk with his priests. And the Genesis story tells us that after God makes man, he moves Adam into the garden, and he and Eve are asked to work and to keep the garden. Now, those two words are the same words used to describe the actions of the priests in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Their job was to keep this sacred space. It was their job to oversee it. And in this garden there is a guardian cherub who is guarding something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what he was guarding. If he was guarding the temple or the Garden of Eden from from who? Uh, that doesn't. If he was at the gates of the garden, is there other people outside that aren't allowed in? Uh, I don't know. Uh, my personal gut feeling is that he's supposed to guard the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that it's his job to act as a warden, in case Adam and Eve did come to the tree to say, hey, think about what you're doing before you take that final step. And instead of being a a warden of the tree, he becomes the peddler of the rebellion. He, He twists his job into a betrayal, both of God and of man. And it takes place on what is called the holy mountain of God. We Throughout the Bible, you're going to get this concept of the holy mountain, And it has to do with that up and down language. The heavenlies are up high. The gods dwell on the mountains or in the skies. And this heavenly mountain or holy mountain is is describing Eden. The Bible tells us that waters flowed out of Eden and watered the rest of the world. Well, that, that means it was up high. That's how water works. It flows downhill. And we don't usually think of Eden as a mountain. We think of it, at least I do, the flannel graph boards made it look kind of like the Bahamas, like it was this really nice vacation place that you would visit and you could, you know, eat some luscious fruits that were growing around. But this is a sacred space. And with uh, very uh, strategically 
laced bushes, right? Oh, yes, That's my favorite yes. Part. That way you, you didn't risk exposure. So back to, like, if, if there are some who believe um, in... We were just talking a little bit about believing about that did the fall happen prior to the creation of the Earth story? Mm-hmm. Um, is this a safe place to ask those kinds of questions? Are we tagging people here, you know, as heretics if they're wrong or other than we think? No, I mean, I just opened up here and let no, no, some I, of no. my personal thoughts loose. I think it's a beautiful thing for just being a, being a place to, again, to, to discover, to discuss, to listen, to learn to ask questions. Some of the best ways to learn is asking questions. So if you have any questions that you email us or have questions that you post on here, um, just know we're not going to attack you and call you heretical. No, no, not at all. And part of the purpose of this is to sit around and talk about it. Yep. If we've got theories, I I can't always put my theories in my sermons because I want to make sure I'm <laughs> preaching something I'm certain about. But part of the hope of this podcast is that it gives us a venue to to wonder out loud. And so if you have a different view... Uh, than me. Please don't stone me. Uh, yeah. But, you know, think about what I'm saying. And if we end up disagreeing, I still believe that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that the Bible is the word of God, that he's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. I, I, I'm right. down with all of that. There's just stuff in the Bible I have questions about. That's right. And and that's what it comes down to. The concept here of Satan, I did want to point out one other thing that has caused some confusion for people is this, what What are the stones of fire that Satan is walking in? And if you remember back uh, that uh, Satan is described as clothed in stones that catch light. In the ancient world, the only known source for light was fire. And so here it's describing other angelic beings. They also are clad in these stones that pulsate light. And so Satan oh. is described as not being alone, that he's part of the angelic host. But we don't talk about people this way. You know, if it said stones, it must mean stones. Well, the Bible also talks about Jesus as a stone. It says he's the cornerstone. First Peter chapter 2 talks about Christians as being living stones. This, this language isn't strange. It's just not the way we would talk about it. Is that making any sense? It's just strange to us. It, it's foreign to the way that we would... Uh, yeah. communicate it. But it's important for us to understand that, like you're mentioning, that what is it truly saying to us? Yeah, and if you jump down all the way to verse 17, you're going to get this really great line. It says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And then it says, I cast you to the ground. This line, this idea of Satan having been glorious and cast into the dirt is a reoccurring image throughout the Bible. And it's going to be important as we look at the book of Genesis chapter three, which is Jacob's favorite book of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying Genesis, yeah. I, and it's only because recently just going through that at the church, going through chapters one through 11, um, just I had a lot of good questions come from them, a lot of good conversations. Our people started digging back in the text together. It's just been a really good journey. Yeah, and it's interesting to call him, him Satan with wise there in Ezekiel 28 because he is a big fool to think he can somehow challenge God. I, that's why I, mm. I just think that's kind of a funny... Statement. We had a long discussion the other day trying to figure out what was Satan thinking, and I think we ended up saying, that doesn't make much sense to any of us. We don't really know because to rebel against God is not wise. I, I like to think we're just too pure at heart to understand what Satan was trying to get to, you know, so we're just too good of people. Uh, that we well, that makes sense. 
Hmm. Probably not. No. <laughs> it's good to think about. But, but the Bible in the book of Genesis introduces you to a character that it seems to not give any background to and is is there in a way that we can already understand. It uses this um, two level of discussion, the physical and the spiritual, and it describes the evil person in this story as the Nakash or as the serpent. And uh, Jacob, you, you've talked a little bit about how this word can mean different things depending on whether you use it as a noun or as a verb or as an adjective. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, but I mean, I think first the big struggle was like, I mean, most of our people really struggle, and even me too at the beginning of this, because everything I learned growing up in my flannel graph, you know, Bible stories, it was always a snake. Mm-hmm. And so when you start, you know, even alluding to the fact that perhaps this wasn't a literal snake and this isn't about zoology and this isn't a lesson on that, um, it, it's a little troubling, I guess. Yeah, but you thinking we're the- going to lose listeners because we're talking about this? May, I don't know. I hope not. I just, for me, I was like, okay, a snake's talking. She's not freaking out. I have all these like weird questions. And then, you know, on your belly, you'll crawl. Okay. Maybe they had legs before and eating dust. And I don't know, but you know, I had all these weird questions. But the word for the estate, a snake or an akash has, you can use it as a, a noun, and that would mean serpent. So it, it's not beyond that idea. But I'm not sure that they were uh, trying to allude to a literal snake, but just what the snake or the symbol of a snake meant. You have like Pharaoh with a, a staff that's a serpent. It, it, there are symbols of power, symbols of of um, wisdom. Um, and so using that, but it's also as a verb, it's used as a, a deceiver or a magician of some sort and that uh, a trickster of so, and, and, and as an adjective, it's as a shiny one. I mean, I think that the word is, is supposed to allude to all three of these parts when it's concerning Satan. Yeah, and the Bible does this in other places when it talks about demonic beings. It talks about the owls, it talks about the goats, it talks about the demons in the wilderness, and it uses animal language to describe them. It isn't saying that they are dogs or that they are owls, but that's the way of talking about them. And here the biblical author, Moses, or whoever you think wrote Genesis, he says there was a serpent, and the word that he uses can mean magician, it can mean necromancer, it can mean uh, a divine being, a shining one, or a snake, and you're asked the question, well, which is it? And, and I think the answer is yes, it's, it's all of those things. He is not good. This is an evil being. And there's tons of stuff. We can get into this when we talk about seraphim at a later date. But it says that the serpent was more crafty, which meant he loved Hobby Lobby more than any of the other beasts out there. He was excellent at this stuff. That can't be true because my wife exists. She's she more crafty. Hobby Lobby than, more than Take a back seat, buddy. Kristen <laughs> yeah. Listener, who will be on our next podcast, by the way. Yep. Uh, she'll be here with us to teach us the ways of wisdom and to answer our questions. Uh, but arom is the word that's used here. And literally, it's it's a compliment. It's it's not a negative thing. This means he was very wise. He he could figure stuff out better than any of the other haya, the other living stuff that's out there. And uh, he has a question for God, or for Eve. He looks at her and he says, did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's an awesome way to start. I mean... Especially if it's his job to guard the tree. Yeah, I mean, as you see, I mean, we all see this as we're reading it. It's leading. He's leading somewhere. It's it's a trick. It's mm. a trickster. Um, you know, the, the the doubt, the twisting of words. Um, but it's it's wild how she kind of goes along with it. And it makes me ask the question of whether she um, knew clearly, added to the rule. Adam told her extra part of the rule. I don't know. But he is engaging with her to to 
take her down a pathway of deception mm. and trickery. Mm. And so I just think it's interesting. Again, I don't know why she's like, oh no, why are you talking to me? You know, just like, there's no, there's no, yeah. meaning that perhaps she's talked to this thing before. Perhaps well, she's she doesn't seem before. shocked that this right. being is talking, uh, which could mean either she's very young, maybe like Adam and Eve were split like a couple hours before this happened. Yeah. Uh, it, it could be that they've been there a very long... We, we aren't Years, given specifics. Yeah. We're allowed to wonder. And in ancient literature, there's lots of talking animals. And they always designate a supernatural encounter of some kind. Uh, even in the Bible, when you get Balaam's donkey who's talking, you're not supposed to you know, read that and be like, oh, I hate when that happens. My donkey's always talking to me. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an unusual... It's a moment where the world's not working right something is is supernaturally occurring here and his temptation is to offer her the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, she answers him and she says doofus you know i'm allowed to eat from any of the the plants that are out here we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but god said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's where the name of this tree comes from for us. We call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think for most people, they have the idea that Adam and Eve didn't know about good and evil until they ate from the tree. That doesn't make much sense to me. It never really has, because if if they don't know it's wrong to eat from the tree, then how can God punish them for having eaten from the tree? They, they have an idea of what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. Now, they haven't experienced evil yet, but this phrase carries with it a different idea than just physically knowing something. It, ha- it carries with it the idea of defining good and evil for yourself. I decide what the rules are, not God. I make the decisions for what's good and what's evil. And we experience this even in our own lives today. As a pastor, I oftentimes am asked to give counseling to people and they'll tell me, you know, what their life is like. And I'll say, you know, that's not very Christ honoring. And I often hear, you know, well, that's true for you, but not for me. You know, I'll decide what I do. And the idea of what Adam and Eve are doing here is they're becoming like a God. We decide what's done in this temple. We decide what's done and how things are to go. And people still do this today. The The concept that this is just a, a stupid thing that Adam and Eve thought is foolish. It's the same thing that people are thinking today. So does that mean that Satan doesn't lie when he says this? Because what you mentioned is when they decide to eat it, they are be trying to become like God by determining what is right and wrong. And that's what he says. You will surely not die, for God knows the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Yeah, and that's the word Elohim, uh, like the heavenly beings. He says, you're going to get an upgrade. You'll decide what's right and wrong. Don't be a, a keeper of the garden. Don't be the one who works in the temple. Be the one that the temple belongs to. And that's kind of what happens, though, right? Like you just mentioned, that they they do put themselves in the same place as God. So that's what Satan said. That's not what he's implying, or that's not what he's referring to, but it is exactly what he said. Yeah, and I think he does know. I think he's aware that this is wrong. This is against the will of God. And I agree with that. It ties back to the the cunningness. We we had a conversation before how 
Satan almost knows the rules of the game better than we do, mm. better than the, the humans do. And so he has the ability to say the same words that are not uh, a lie or are just twisting around what has been said, and he does it later on in the Bible too, but it, it, it allows him to get the better of us by playing the same game that we're playing. And it makes total sense. You used the word just a minute ago, the twisting. If you were to describe a being who twists the truth, who twists the will of God, a perfect animal to describe that is a snake, is a serpent. And they're connected in ancient myth to healing, to wisdom, to knowledge. Even today, look at the back of an ambulance. Uh, this image hasn't gone away. It's part of uh, of the mythos of the world. And so did Satan possess a snake? Maybe, but you can't blame the snake. It, it, there was a demonic being, an evil supernatural being at work. I personally don't think it was a snake. I think there's something more going on here. But again, every time I brought this up in the past, people really freaked out and they did not like where that idea went. I wouldn't say if it was a snake or not, but he definitely has a forked tongue when he's talking. Ah, uh, he speaks with a forked so tongue. There yeah. you go. <laughs> Jacob, why don't you take it from here? No, I was just, just looking at the text and... and God, Satan hasn't changed his game. I mean, honestly, I mean, Adam and Eve were made in God's image, and there's always this idea that God is holding back on us, that, that God somehow um, is keeping us from having fun or living our life or being, you know, what, whatever it is, um, you know, whether it's commercials. There's lots and lots of things out there that are the guys who are partying, drinking, they're having fun, and we aren't, you know, it's because we're going to church and we're trying to say no to... All those things we're supposed to say no to. And there's still the same strategy of, you know, God doesn't want you to have any fun. God's holding back on you. He's he's made all these rules because he wants you to be miserable. Yeah, if this, you define right and wrong for yourself, that's right. You'll or self-discovery, yep. you know, that kind of a thing, then you'll be happy. And the weird part is that it it, it was That's not true, by the way. You you won't be happy if you do that. You won't. Well, it, it's a temporary pleasure for sure. I mean, Moses even recognized that. It is a pleasurable thing for a season. And I can in my own testimony, you know, say that, that that life is truly found when you say yes to Jesus and you find life in Jesus Christ alone. Yeah. The stuff the world offers is fun for a season, but it is miserable and it's empty. So here's the offer he has for her, making her think that there's something more that she is to attain. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden this becomes desirable. Now there's a neat line in here, Jacob, that you, you told me quite a bit about the idea of see and take. W would you get into that in this verse a little bit? So there's a, yeah, there's a pattern as when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. This pattern really flows all through the Old Testament. Uh, it starts off with seeing something and then desiring it, then taking it, or just seeing it and taking it. And you find definitely this here is the starting point. Um, you see King David that looks at Bathsheba and desires her and then takes her. We see Achan in the story of Joshua uh, where he sees an opportunity. He sees some some gold, some things in there, and he, he desires it, sees it could help him gain um, in his future. He takes it. He hides it under his tent. And the weird part about all this, and, and, and this is a flowing thing all through Scripture of seeing and desiring and taking. Jacob wrote down a couple extras here. Abraham and, Sa and Sarah yeah. with Hagar, Aaron at Mount Sinai, King Saul, yeah. Israel sees the other nations, Achan, Samson, David, and Bathsheba. Yeah. There, there's a long there's list a here. And that's not an accident. The Bible is purposefully loading those words with Eden connections. Yeah. 
And so when you see those repeated in those other stories, I, I love how Tim Mackey and the Bible Project say this. It's it's a hyperlink. It links you back to this other story. You're supposed to take the imagery from those stories and lay it right next to this to mm-hmm. get that deeper view of the idea and, and the overcoming of them. Like when Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan says, you know, hey, man, aren't you hungry? Why don't you turn these stones into food? And his his response is that is an awesome idea, you know. Yeah. It's it's not that it's no. Satan's quoting scripture over and over through that text, and God shows us how to respond to this. That that is a path that leads to destruction. Uh, it also says there that she gave her husband who was with her, and he ate. Yeah, do you ever did that? I don't, I don't know. If people really think that through because it happens real fast in the middle of a sentence and just kind of read it real, really quickly. But Adam. It seems as though he was with her this entire narrative, meaning he didn't say a word. I, I know that we like to give Eve a bad rap, and I'm, I'm not saying that you know she, she's not responsible, but when, when why didn't he speak up? Like, what's going on with him? Yeah, well, if you read the New Testament, Eve is, is said that she was deceived. She's not given any blame for this. Yeah. Adam is held responsible. The sin of the world does, is, is not a female contribution. Uh, it's a male contribution here. And not to get into the gender politics of this, but really just to look at them as a couple, they were supposed to work together. Yeah. And when he, she really needed him, he's silent. He, You get the idea that he is in favor of this, that this isn't just something he was like, well, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. That this is something maybe he's thought about it every time he walked past this tree. Uh, we aren't really given much of the story, but he is not a protector. It also seems like um, their eyes weren't opened until he ate from it. Like yeah, I have another theory here that, again, you guys can throw stones at me if you want to. I, I won't preach this, but I think it, so I'm going to say it on the podcast, uh, is you, you have the idea in the Bible of when people are seen in the spiritual world that they are clothed in glory. Hmm that they are seen as, like uh, Satan was described as being clothed in flashing stones. Or is this like when Jesus was transfigured? Uh-huh. Uh, was suddenly kinda... his clothes aren't the color they were before. Okay. That there's a there's a, a, a holiness that clothing. shrouds him. Okay. And I suddenly Adam and Eve see each other naked. What happened here? I, I refuse to believe that Adam didn't notice Eve was naked <laughs> before that. Uh, there, there has to have been that that he was aware of this. But suddenly, what appears to be happening is that their ability to see into the supernatural world of Eden is closed, and all that they see is the physical world. And suddenly, they are aware that they are not clothed, and so they try to become like trees. They try to clothe themselves in borrowed glory from the trees, from the fig leaves. And as they're scrounging around trying to to find a way to, to cover themselves, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day. So the, the wind is blowing and they hear God. They don't see him. They hear God walking and calling out their names, looking for the priests of the garden, looking for the two that he's placed here. And there has to have been just terror through their minds and hearts in what's happening here. And I feel like we've really flannel graphed this board into, or veggie-tailed it, into just like a comic thing. Like, well, you know, Eve, Adam, where are you? Like, it's a hide-and-seek game. It's not. This, this is a terrifying moment. 
And a couple of things, if I can jump in with you talking about how Adam noticing Eve, I mean, they're told to be fruitful and multiply, and I think we know how that happens. So they definitely saw We're going to keep this podcast PG. That, um, but the other thing is, yeah, you're exactly right when he says they hear God going yeah. to them, and they can't see him anymore, but it's... It's just a, it's another example of how they, they lose that spiritual world to them, but it's almost like, can God see them now anymore either? Because he's calling out, like, where are they, right? He knows where they are, and I've always thought of that as like, well, he's giving them a chance to, you know, bring it to him or mm-hmm. to confess their sins before he comes and brings the sledgehammer on them. Um, but it's almost like, has he lost connection with them as well? Does it work both ways with that? I don't know. It's just a, a funny thought that I've kind of thought— here, and it, it seems weird that I'm saying, well, God can't do that because he can't mm. see them. Well, I think he knows where they are. It's just, is it just a symbol of like, hey, I can't... I think it's a symbol of separation. I don't have the same that connection. That Adam and to. Eve, like, and it happens right when mm-hmm. they least want it to happen. And where's the snake? Like, he, he's not mentioned here. Like, what happened to that guy? Like, he's, he's not in the discussion. Now it's Adam and Eve frantically trying to fix the problem themselves, mm-hmm. and they cannot. The only way to overcome sin in our lives is through the power of Jesus, through the forgiveness of Jesus. No matter how many trees you wallow around around or good deeds you do, it's only the shed blood of Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers that brings us healing from the separation that sin brings. I used to, again, the sledgehammer thing is it's a common thought process I had about God. And when I was going through the Genesis series with our Church, I couldn't help but to think that how many times what I used to look at and interpret as a sledgehammer is is really a picture of grace. Um, you know, the engaging with Adam and Eve, knowing what's happened, but approaching two sinners and coming towards them, and then moving to a place where he's actually going to clothe them. People and make often a say that God cannot be in the presence of sin. Yeah, and here you have the Lord seeking out the sinner to help them. Yeah. And I think that is a much more biblically accurate way of describing God. Does he love sin? No. Is he going to judge sin? Yes. But he loves sinners enough to seek us out and save us from our sins. So Adam and Eve don't even have to be trained on, you know, things that we that we often do. They they shift gears and and go right into this blame game. God says, you know, hey, how did you know? And they automatically go to, again, where most of us go, the whole blame shifting, not owning their own responsibility, their own decision-making, but the the woman you gave me. I, I, you for me, yeah, gave me. This that, is your I, fault for bringing her into this. If I kid, if I kid did that to me, I, I oh, man, I would be so bad. <laughs> if, he, he, if he did something and he blamed on something that it was because of me. You're you being know, very I'll, specific. You know, yes. which kid are you thinking no, of? I'm here? not going to name any names. Just I'm just saying. I just I, you know who the you audacity are of of Adam to to blame. Like, well, you know, it wouldn't is... be Zoe because she made my coffee today as I went through the drive-through, and she's on my favorite list. Yeah. So be but nice she to double her. cups, yeah. But you can imagine how your kid would feel like they could get away with that because you're a human being. Look, I have sensitive hands. The, the The hot coffee in the cup needs two cups. They don't do sleeves, okay, so I need okay. two cups. You know, you you make mistakes. We all make mistakes. So you could see where a kid might be able to finagle one out of like, well, you're the one that got us the sugar that made us all hyped up and whatever. But yeah, this is the God that created the universe yeah. and him. And like Adam saw that. He saw all the animals come by and he named them. And he and Adam's he not an idiot. Power of he's God, wise. Right? He's aware of this. This is this is sad. And yet he still is like he's been 
Look over there. She did. That's that's the bottom of the barrel. He has no excuses mm-hmm. at this point. And I do want to not focus in on Adam and Eve here because this is a topic about Satan. And so let's let's go then and look at how the Bible judges this supernatural being who has rebelled against God. So does this seem like though, as we go into, um, you know, he he's talking out of me, but he goes right right into this because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock? Is I mean. Does this not seem like he's still with them? No, it does. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go into this. I think this stuff is, is so intriguing, especially they'll piece it out and think through. So what it doesn't is look like here. the serpent was trying to clothe himself with leaves no. or anything like uh-uh. that, but he also doesn't get away. And God doesn't come down and say, Satan, what are you doing here? I judged you before the foundations of the world and you snuck into my temple and I had no idea that you were here. Mm. What is he doing in the garden? personal opinion and again this is where you throw rocks watch at where me. it's all going down yeah i think <laughs> i think he was supposed to be there i think this is the fall of satan wow. this is when he's judged this is the original sin that's described in isaiah and in ezekiel and i think the bible's a little more complicated than paradise lost led on and he says because you have done this i curse you i curse you more than any other living stuff that's out here the animals even you're below that you are placed below and there's that imagery again of the demonic being symbolized in the grave, in the earth, down deep. That is the place where Satan belongs. He says, you are cursed above all the beasts of the field. How is he described as moving around on your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. That and, phrase is, that, that phrase is oh, a, ahead. I mean, we see the Isaiah passage about the tree being fallen to the ground. Um it's a it's a, a forced. It's almost like I think of a king that forces something on, who thinks it's powerful onto its face mm-hmm. to prove that it's not. I think of Nebuchadnezzar who um, kind of got forced into like a beast like um, type of thing, and and it was also uh, on the ground and had to eat weird stuff. And there's a couple instances of this in the Bible. My, my favorite one is when the Philistines capture the Ark of God and they take it into the temple of their god Dagon. And they come in in the morning, and Dagon is laying on its face. The idol of Dagon is laying on its face in front of the ark. And they're like, oh, Dagon, you know, here, we'll we'll help you back up. And the next day, they come back, and he's fallen down and, like, smashed to pieces. And they were like, we got to get rid of this thing. It is really messing with our our guide who lives here. And so they, they take it away. The other times in the Bible, especially in the Minor Prophets, demonic forces are described as being great trees high on the mountains, and the wind of God pushes them over, and they fall from the mountaintops. And so either you're left thinking that, you know, Amos was just really into wind patterns at high altitude, or this is about a supernatural reality. This is God judging these beings. And this language is stock language for how a king would describe another rival that he's destroyed in battle. So we don't have to think about a snake. This is how a snake finally had to slither on the ground. This no. is, this is a, a high being being brought low and humbled. I think so, and yeah. especially because of the next line. You know, he's he's crawling on his belly. That's not the walk of a warrior. That's not the walk of a heroic general. That's this true. is this is a defeated foe groveling for his life. And then it says, "Dust you shall eat." Well, snakes don't eat dust. They just don't. They they eat mice and they eat other things like that. But they're creatures of the earth. And I don't think God is up in heaven like, I used to really like snakes, and now I just hate them. They're, they're not on my favorite list anymore. When you talk about the dust, I had this thought the other day where it's, you know, snakes 
physical snakes today don't eat dirt. They don't eat dust. I don't think they did then either. But something that I thought of is where did God create man from? The dust. The dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And then when we're done with our body, it goes back, back to, to the, the dust, dust right? Mm-hmm. So now Satan is here to eat the dust or devour the dust. He is an enemy of mankind. Dust. He is not our friend. And so when people engage in things like trying to communicate with spirits in the spiritual world, I, I, I tell people not to do that, not because I don't think it works, but because I think it does work. And those beings do not care for you. They are not friends of yours. They desire your destruction. And they may lead you and give you what you're looking for at the time, but they're going to destroy you. That's their ultimate goal, just like it was with Adam and Eve here. I'll give you something that looks appealing, but the end of this path is destruction. And it's given in a beautiful way in the next verse, and we're going to wrap it up kind of here with verse 15. I will put war, enmity between you and the woman, not the man, but the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first instance that we have of the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus. And the snake image again of that of a poisonous viper that bites you in the foot and thinks, aha, you know, now I've, I've doomed you. And then it gets its head smashed in by the boot as it comes down. That's exactly what happens at the cross. Satan kills Jesus and thinks, aha, I've brought you down into death. You are here with me where I have power. And Jesus overcomes death. He takes the keys of the kingdom and overwhelms the powers of darkness that the very thing that Satan tries to stop, God does anyway, because our God is greater than anything that the darkness can bring into your life. And so we talk about these things, and we were discussing this earlier. Our our purpose isn't to try to frighten you, but to give you hope. Is there spiritual darkness in the world? Yeah. Are there demons? Yes. Is Satan real? Absolutely. So what should you do? I would encourage you to look to Jesus. 